No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath, as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability. I am sworn to uphold the Constitution as Andy Johnson understands it and interprets it. Outside of the Constitution, we have no legal authority more than private citizens, and within it, we have only so much as that instrument gives us. This broad principle limits all our functions and applies to all subjects. This is Plausibly Live. I have this long-held theory about the similarity between the study of Talmud, the study of Torah, scriptures in general, Bibles, and the study of the Constitution, and how they are very similar in practice. Now, I'm not saying that the Constitution is scripture. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is the methodology by which we study the two is very similar and should be very similar. At the end of the day, though, whether you're studying scriptures or the Constitution, it really all comes down to interpretation. I I don't know how many times I've said this to you. Uh, It's amazing to me that two people can look at the same words on the same page and come to completely polar opposite ideas about what it means. And again, it doesn't matter if you're studying Torah. And believe me, when you're studying Torah, there's an old saying, two Jews, three opinions. Or whether you're studying Bible. And of course, you know, when you get into Bible study, then you got all kinds of different opinions about things. and You see things differently. It's just the way it is. Whether you're talking about, uh, you know, Christians and Jews and how they see Jesus differently or Muslims and Christians see Jews, Jesus differently. Now, let's not even get into the different versions of the scriptures. Is it King James? Is it New King James? Is it NIV? Is it you know, the, the, the Jewish publications? We, you know, we have same similar arguments, although not as much because we have the authoritative version in the, in the Hebrew. But you get all these different interpretations of things that are caused by people's biases. It's caused by their beliefs. It's caused by their traditions, all those kinds of things. So it's, it's no surprise then that when we come to the Constitution itself, there are varying opinions about what it means. It's not as, I, I know we all want it to be, because when I read these words on the page, it means this to me. What it means to me may not be what it means to you or to someone else of a different political persuasion. And to simply say that they're wrong defeats the whole purpose of this thing in in many ways. When we come to what's happened this week in Colorado, it creates even more of that confusion, doesn't it? Look, you're going to have weeks now of talking heads who 
who are going to tell you that they're right and you're wrong-isms about how their interpretation of what it means is what it is, those guys' interpretation is wrong. And that's the end of the discussion. And, and anger is going to be the theme of the day. As you know, I like to look at things from a historical standpoint. I like to see things, I wouldn't say differently, but sometimes it makes me wonder. And since the Colorado ruling came out, I have been reading it. I've been talking to a couple of friends about it. Millsurp Ryder and Pat the lawyer and I had a short conversation about it. The ruling is, it's typical of a, not a Supreme Court, lower level United States Supreme Court. Yes, it is the Colorado Supreme Court, but even in that ruling, courts don't like to get involved in political decisions. They said what they had to say, and then they said, well, it's not our, it's not our responsibility. It's somebody else's decision, which is pretty typical of, again, lower level courts. So what did they, what does it actually say? Well, the court said that Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection is therefore ineligible for office, ineligible to be on the ballot in California, in Colorado. And I may accidentally confuse Colorado and California, uh, having grown up in Colorado. I can tell you that it's very similar to California now. Let's go to the text. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a two-thirds vote of each House, remove such disability. That's a lot of words, and it's a lot of strange-sounding stuff. It's a, there's a lot of commas here. There's a lot of words here that we assume we know what mean, but do we? And I submit to you today that the intention of the people who wrote that was to be as unclear as possible, and they successfully achieved that. I think there's a reason why they were trying to be unclear. I think there's a a deeper meaning here that parsing of the language is what you're going to see a lot of in the next few weeks. For example, what is any office, civil or military? What is shall be a versus is eligible to be a? What does all this mean? The, what is an insurrection? Engaged in an insurrection. To engage in that, what does that mean? Or rebellion. Or given aid or comfort to the enemy thereof. These are all phrases that we all think we know what means, but again, it's subject to interpretation. It's subject to, really, what do I want it to mean? 
which I submit to you is exactly what the men who wrote the 14th Amendment wanted it to be. Because I think they had an idea. There's an old saying in ministry about, about writing sermons. And it goes like this. If you write a sermon and you get ready to preach a sermon or a midrash or whatever, that's aimed at one person in your congregation, that one person who really needs to hear this, it is absolutely guaranteed that that one person will not be there that week. What if, when they wrote the 14th Amendment in the third section, what if they intended that for a president just not the president that Colorado thinks it is. What do you think? Why do we have a 14th Amendment in the first place? Well, 14th Amendment is a, it's a unique amendment in the history of the United States Constitution. As Professor Akhil Omar puts it, it is a complete rewrite of the Constitution. It is essentially a new Constitution. In, in, in short, and we don't have a lot of time here, but in short, what the, what the 14th Amendment was intended to do and what it did was to make the Constitution of the United States, including the Bill of Rights, applicable to the states. Prior to the 14th Amendment, if a state wanted to have a religion, establish a religion, if the state wanted to deny your freedom of speech, if a state wanted to tell you that you don't get a trial, they could. The purpose of the 14th Amendment was to eliminate that, and the reason they needed to eliminate that was because of something called the Black Codes. Now again, after the end of the Civil War, the southern states actually very quickly ratified the 13th Amendment, which deleted slavery, made it illegal. But they followed that up with a series of laws known as the Black Codes, which essentially reestablished slavery in everything but name only. I don't have time to go through all this today. Uh, maybe at some point in the future we'll go through this a little bit more, but the Black Codes were, they were Jim Crow on steroids, folks. It's, it essentially made it illegal to be black in the southern states where these laws were applied. And it was not unusual to arrest men and women and children simply because they were black. The 14th Amendment was necessary because the states were violating the civil rights of these citizens. The problem is, of course, that they weren't citizens yet because the, the, the Dred Scott decision had said they can't be citizens. And no legal methodology yet had made them citizens. Well, there was bigger problems than that, which, of course, was how do we deal with the citizenship thing, how do we deal with debt? The Confederacy and the Union had both racked up massive amounts of debts. All these things needed to be addressed. President Johnson, who had replaced President Lincoln, had already issued a general amnesty to Confederates across the board. With the exception of those who had been charged with a felony, all of the Confederates had already been granted amnesty. So even that wasn't really the necessary issue. 
they had all of these ideas, all of these things that they needed to do, and they essentially took what, what, what originally had been five proposed amendments, they stitched them together and made the 14th Amendment, and they sent it to the states to be passed. And the states refused to pass it. First time it went out. In the meantime, at the end of the Civil War and after the adoption of the 13th Amendment, the southern states had elected representatives, senators and representatives, to go to Congress to represent themselves. But there had been a fundamental shift. Slaves no longer counted as three-fifths of a person. African Americans now counted as whole persons. And so suddenly the political power of the South had not just increased, it had increased significantly by losing the Civil War. And when these legislators showed up for the 39th Congress in the, in the uh, winter of 1865, the Republicans refused to seat them, refused to seat them, would not allow them to represent their states because, wait, <laughs> what happens if? Already states uh, in, in 1866, a year later, were refusing to pass the 14th Amendment. And this was being led by no less than, than the president, Andrew Johnson himself. They were, Johnson had become the single biggest obstacle to civil rights for African Americans and to the passage of the 14th Amendment. Now, Andrew Johnson is a Southerner. He's from Tennessee, which is a border state. I get it. He'd been put on the, the ticket with Lincoln to try to attract border state votes. As it turned out, it wasn't necessary, but in 1864, nobody knew that. And he was vehemently angry at Congress for not seating the southern states. And so he went on a personal campaign in the summer of 1866, leading to the most important midterm election in the history of this country. What's the direction we're going to go? Are we going to reconstruct the South? Or are we just going to say, well, the war's over, that's it. Everybody go back to what you were doing before. And the Black Code's taking effect. Johnson did not believe that Congress had the authority to pass legislation, including the 14th Amendment, because the Southern states had not been reseated, even though they had been told if they pass the 13th Amendment, they're good to go. He was, he was absolutely, you know, just dead set against this. And so Andrew Johnson begins to travel the country for the summer of, in the summer of 1866, for the midterms. He travels the country making speeches, urging the people of America to reject the 14th Amendment, to reject the Republican Congress, to oppose civil rights legislation. All of these kinds of things. He is absolutely dead set against all this stuff as the President of the United States. And sitting next to him on the stage as he's going around the country is Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant is the general of the army. He is uh, in full uniform when he goes on these trips with Johnson. And the implication of him sitting there is that the United States Army is going to back the President. 
the president is against civil rights legislation. He is against the 14th Amendment. And Grant's presence on the stage with him at all of these stops indicates that he is going to support, the Army is going to support President Johnson against Congress. Johnson vetoes the civil rights legislation. He doesn't have to veto the 14th Amendment because the president doesn't have to sign for an amendment. But Congress overrides it. He's furious over the southern states not being seated. And this campaign is becoming vicious. It's probably the most divided our country has ever been in 1866, after the American Civil War. And these two guys sitting on the stage, Grant in silence, and Johnson telling everybody that the southern states are trustworthy, they will not violate any of the, the laws, they won't have any problems. Until, in July of that year, there is an incident in New Orleans where white Southern Democrats massacre, and I mean massacre, African Americans who are rallying for their political rights. And it's this incident that the Republicans then play as, see, President Johnson is lying to you. They cannot be trusted. They have to be forced to accept both the 14th Amendment and the civil rights legislation, because otherwise, they're just going to murder these people. And in a landslide in 1866, the Republicans sweep Congress again, and it, and, and it seems like, well, now we're, now we're at loggerheads. The president isn't going to go along with this stuff, and the states are not ratifying the 14th Amendment. In fact, they're voting it down. And so, through a long series of debates, I don't have time to go through the whole thing, Congress, still without any Southern representation, you need to understand that, the House is dominated, if you're looking at the video, you see all the gray areas. The gray areas are either Southern states or territories that are not formed yet, so they have no representation in the House. In the Senate, it's even worse because the, the Constitution specifically says no state shall be denied its suffrage in the Senate without, you know, it's a consent, and they have not consented to this. In fact, they believe very firmly that by passing the 13th Amendment, they have met the conditions to return to statehood. And so all of these states are, are voting down the 14th Amendment. Congress hits on a new idea. And this idea, they, they have two, two possible ideas. Number one, they could just do an outright military occupation of the South. Or, John Bingham, the man who is mostly responsible for much of the 14th Amendment, hits on another idea. What if we, Congress, now listen to this. What if Congress declares that all state legislatures in the former Confederate states are hereby dissolved? Can you do that? Constitutionally, can you do that? We're dissolving all your state legislature. We want you to have new conventions. At these new conventions, you will pass new constitutions, new state constitutions, which meet our approval. And as a part of that, you will ratify the 14th Amendment. 
And until you do those things, we will not seat you. Your, your legislators will not be allowed to be seated in Senate or the House. Now, those are the two plans. Military occupation, force, or you can do it this way. Neither of these are constitutional, by the way, but this is what they ultimately will decide to do. And it's against that background that this, is, this election, this campaign of 1866 goes on. GOP wins in a landslide. The, the radical Republicans, which is about 70% of the Republicans in Congress, believe that Congress is supreme, that they can legislate anything. And I do mean anything, including the disillusion of these particular state legislators and the forcing of them to re reconsider the 14th Amendment with new conventions and new state legislatures. Johnson has a different plan. He knows that in order to make this work, Congress is going to have to use the military to oversee the elections. It may not be a military occupation, but they're going to have to use the military to oversee these elections. And so he comes up with a plan. As soon as Congress takes their summer recess, he fires Edward Stanton, who is the Secretary of War, who is the most radical of radical Republicans. I mean, he's he is just absolutely, he hates Johnson. He fires him as Secretary of War. And he immediately replaces him, temporarily, a recess appointment, if you will, with Ulysses S. Grant. Now, this is some political maneuvering, isn't it? By replacing him with Grant, he's sending a message that, number one, he's not playing around, but number two, he believes that the Tenure in Office Act, which is an act that Congress passed, which is clearly unconstitutional, um, he wants to litigate that. It, the law essentially says that he can't fire the Secretary of War without Congress's permission, which is nonsense, but he's going to litigate this. And by putting Grant in that position, Congress isn't going to you know, defy General Grant, are they? When Congress returns that fall, the very first thing they do is say, no, you have violated the Tenure in Office Act, and we will not accept your termination of, of Edward Stanton. And Grant has to make a decision. Is he going to help the president to litigate this law, which will then drag out the 14th Amendment's passage, or is he going to, what is he going to do? And General Grant walks out of the office, hands the keys to Edward M. Stanton, and says, I will not defy Congress. Congress is supreme. And this, of course, leads then to the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson is impeached. Technically, the charges are that he violated the, the Tenure in Office Act. But really, is that what he did? He, he's going to be saved from impeachment by one vote. And we've talked about that in the past. I almost want to go back and look at that again, because there's some shenanigans going on here. That happens in May, May 26th of 1868. He's, he's found, he's acquitted. And in the process of all this, there's still that 14th Amendment hanging out there. And now the Republicans are going to go ahead with their plan 
to get the southern states to be forced to ratify it. In July of that year, 1868, the Democrats will have their convention. And when they go to the convention, Johnson is actually the number two polling guy. He still wants to be president. But it's becoming obvious that this is going to be a problem, and he is defeated in his seeking for the nomination. History goes its course. The 14th Amendment, the the constitutional conventions in the southern states happen. The new state governments are formed. They adopt the 14th Amendment. But Andrew Johnson is still out there. Andrew Johnson spends the rest of his life hinting that he wants to get back into politics, hinting that he is considering running for various offices of the United States government. In fact, he makes it very clear at one point that he wants to be the senator from Tennessee. And when that doesn't work out, he doesn't lose by much, he considers a run for Congress as a representative. And when that doesn't work out, he thinks about, maybe I should run for governor of Tennessee. Maybe I should... uh, Maybe I should consider that. And at no point does anyone tell him that he is not eligible to run for office. But those words are still out there. No person shall be a senator or representative of Congress or an elector or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who have previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature which Johnson had been, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, which Johnson had been, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. The Republicans considered the Southern Democrats, the Southern folks who wanted to not pass civil rights legislation to be the enemies thereof. In fact, they were ready to militarily occupy them. It's all about interpretation, folks. It's all about how you read the words on the page and what's going on around you. 14.3 is specifically and intentionally vague. Two people can look at the same words on a page scriptures, theology, it doesn't matter. And they can come to completely opposite polar conclusions about what it actually means. And then argue about, you're right, you're wrong. Keep in mind that in 1868, 1876, 18, whatever, it was not, there was never an argument about, are you eligible to run? In fact, There couldn't be, because the president had issued his amnesty for all but just a very few handful of Confederates. Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, was elected multiple times from the state of Georgia to represent the state of Georgia in Congress. It couldn't be about eligibility. But it was not unusual for them to not seat people. Remember the 39th Congress, where they basically told the southern states, tough. You don't get to be here because you have not met the criteria that we have decided you should meet. 
And if you go back and you look at this again, it's 14.3. At no point does it use the word eligible. What it says is, no person shall be. If you get elected and show up to Congress, and we have decided that you are under the 14.3, we're simply going to turn you away. We don't care about your eligibility. What we care about is you shall not be a senator or representative or an elector or hold any office, civil or military. Which, of course, well, that raises some other questions we don't have time to get into. But Or be a governor or be a part of a state legislature. In other words, I wonder if 14.3 wasn't more about Andrew Johnson and keeping this guy who was very powerful as the president of the United States, as a military governor of Tennessee, as a potential senator or congressman, and who viciously opposed the radical Republicans and their Reconstruction agenda. He specifically vetoed civil rights legislation, and he opposed the 14th Amendment and its protections for due process, equal protection, privileges or immunities for all citizens. Because, as they said at the 1868 convention, Democrat convention, the unofficial slogan was, this is a white country. Let white men run it. I wonder, and it's just a thought, what if 14.3 was about a president written by men who hated that guy, who wanted to make sure that he was politically neutered and that they had a backdoor way of no matter what his state did, no matter what the voters of the country did, of saying, no. I'm wondering if 14.3 wasn't written for the president, like the state of Colorado thinks, but perhaps a specific president, Andrew Johnson, who, by the way, <laughs> never served in office again. It's all a matter of interpretation, folks. It's all a matter of what you see on the page versus what he sees on the page versus what I see on the page. That's the argument we're going to get. I just wonder if we could crawl into the mind of John Bingham and those folks who were there. Was this really about Confederates or was it about Andrew Johnson? Because I got a feeling it was about Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson.